Well, good morning again. Welcome to uh, the Leewood campus. We're always delighted you're here and uh, hope you are doing well. Uh, my name is Tom Nelson, and again, we're so glad uh, that you're here. Recently, our family spent a rather fun weekend in Napa, California. Uh, Napa, California is a beautiful place to visit. It's also a great place, in case you've ever been there or will be there, it's a great place to grow things, especially grapes. Now, if you've been to Napa, you know some of the finest wine is made there. And every wine tasting event, I assure you, is quite the educational experience. Those that grow varieties of grapes in Napa Valley will talk a lot about microclimates, all kinds of conditions that make good grapes. But when you listen to them, they speak most about the unique compensation of the soil. If there's one thing I learned recently in Napa, California about growing grapes is if you're going to get good wine, you have to have the right kind of soil. The right kind of soil produces fruitfulness. I find it fascinating what the farmers of Napa Valley know about making wine. And what Jesus of Nazareth knew about the human heart have striking similarities. In our text this morning, Jesus will tell us that what is true of the soil beneath us is also true of the soul within us. When it comes to a fruitful life, the condition of your heart, your soul, my heart, my soul really matters. Like good soils, good souls yield fruitful lives. Now, if we realize that Jesus lived in a first century agrarian world, Many crops were grown there, including grapes. It's not surprising that Jesus, using common metaphors of his time, will use things like wine and wineskins to describe truly the good and fruitful life that is now available to all who had apprenticed their lives with him. Now, if you're newer to the church or you're checking out the Christian faith, this may surprise you. But if you've been in the church a while or you've been in the Christian circles for a while, this will not surprise you. Somehow it seems like in Christian circles, we often hear a good deal about the importance of living a faithful life. But it seems to me we hear much less about the importance of living a fruitful life. Is it possible to live a faithful life without living a fruitful life? How Jesus addresses this question is both surprising and, yes, sobering. If you brought a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament, if you're not there already. Matthew chapter 13. Now, as a church family, we've been exploring Jesus' teaching on the truly good life. It's a major theme of the Gospel of Matthew. We have probed what it is. What is this good life? How is it found and how is it lived out in everyday life? And as we come to Matthew chapter 13, we now encounter a very striking, distinct literary terrain that surprises us here in chapter 13. If you have your Bible open, you'll notice that chapter 13 is chock full of parables. When's the last time in sort of normal conversation you use the word parable? And we don't use that very much anymore. But parables are short stories that bring timeless truth to everyday life. And whatever you may know about Jesus, 
or heard about Jesus or wondered about Jesus, I have to say, wherever you are this morning, without a doubt, Jesus, slam dunk, was a master storyteller, right? But Jesus told stories, brilliant stories, not just to entertain a crowd, but to deeply touch human hearts. The parable we're going to explore this morning is known by theologians and students of the Bible as the parable of the sower. Now, we need to grasp something important here, that another writer, gospel, gospel writer Mark, tells us that this particular parable is the foundational parable of all of Jesus' parables. In other words, this parable unlocks distinctly all other parables. You go, whoa, this is the interpretive key. And so we need to pay close attention to this parable, and as we enter into it, there are many, many wonderful nuggets of truth to mine. But there is one grand idea that connects it all, and we're going to probe that this morning. What is it? The good life Jesus has been teaching about and offers is a fruitful life, a fruitful life that flows from a flourishing heart, a fruitful life that flows from a flourishing heart. Now, as we enter this text, the message this morning will follow Jesus' flow, because when you look at this text, there is a very observable and logical progression. You can't miss it if you have your Bible open. First, Jesus tells a story in verses 1 through 9. Then following that, Jesus tells why He tells the story. So He tells the story, then He tells why He tells the story in verses 10 through 16. And then He explains what the story means in verses 17 through 23. So our flow this morning is going to follow brilliant Jesus' teaching, right? First thing is Jesus tells a story. What is the story? Why does He tell stories like that? And then what does the story mean? Okay, you with me? So that's where we're going. Let's dive in. So, Matthew tells us right away, as he welcomes us back to the first century world, he tells us right away that there's a great crowd pressing around Jesus. This not su- should surprise us if we have been a part of this series in Matthew, because Jesus has attained rock star celebrity status in first century Israel. We know he is now located on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus gets in a small boat. All these details matter to Matthew, and we must not miss him. Uh, and it's anchored close to shore. What Jesus is doing He's using water. How many have kind of, you know, said a few words across the water? You just hear it, right? It just amplifies voice. So imagine Jesus sitting out in a small boat. It's anchored, a large crowd on the beach, and He is speaking with the natural aid of amplification of the water. That's the picture. Now, Jesus, the carpenter of Nazareth, puts on His farmer's hat as He tells the story. And if you uh, were listeners, you would have understood this, but sometimes we are, you know, uh, millennia of distance and culture. What's going on here is, his listeners understood this, but they just, a, a farmer in the spring went out to sow his field. There were many grains like wheat and so forth. And uh, in Palestinian context, there are different kinds of soil, but almost all of them have what's called as a nari crust. Archaeologists understand this. Is a, it's a thin layer, a hard layer of crust. You have to break up with a wooden plow or oxen to allow the soil to receive the seed. And everybody heard it, understood it, but we don't understand that today. Um, and we have a mechanized way of planting seeds. But here, the picture is, is the farmer on, in the spring, after breaking up the soil with this nari crust, <clears throat> then would have this picture. Here's a, a picture of Vincent van Gogh's famous sower 
and seed. It's a, it's a brilliant sower at sunset is the title. And I want you to kind of imagine this because this is the picture uh, that Jesus is painting for us in this text. So keep that in mind as we go through it. The farmer scatters the seed. It falls all over, right? On four different types of soil, Jesus says. And he introduces the four types of soil, soil or four types of souls, as we'll see. The hard soil, the rocky soil, the weedy soil, and the good soil. So let's just keep this in mind as we walk through the text. Now, when the seed lands on the good soil, it flourishes, right? It flourishes. It grows to maturity and it produces fruitfulness. Then Jesus adds a rabbinical cue at the end of the story, and it is in verse 9. We must not miss this. Verse 9, if you have your text open, here he says, Jesus says, after telling the story, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, we will see this through the Gospel of Matthew. This was a very famous rabbinical cue in teaching in the time. And he wants us to know that this isn't just a nice story of a farmer, you know, planting his seed in the spring in the first century culture. There's something more we must not miss. Under the surface lies an important heads up truth we dare not miss. In other words, what Jesus will say over and over again is this, to truly live well, we must listen well. Many times we think about the good life is found in talking. Here Jesus reminds us that we are to listen well. Henry Nouwen, a wonderful writer in the Catholic tradition, I think really has remarkable insight here. In one of his devotionals, he writes this, the Latin word for not listening or being deaf is sardis. He writes, if you're absolutely not listening, this is where the word absurd comes from. So, now, and rightly concludes with his Latin, so somebody who is not listening, really listening, is leading an absurd life. I think Jesus is saying that exactly. And Jesus' story piques the interest of the crowd. They are in rapt attention on their seats, but it's the curiosity of his closest disciples where Matthew focuses. Now, I want to interject here, and I always say this is not inspired, this is perspired, but uh, there's a sense where I think the disciples imagine the audacity. He's the most brilliant teacher of the universe. They've been around him a while, and they're going, Jesus, what are you doing? There's almost a sense they're puzzled and maybe a little bit perturbed. That's at least my interpretation. In verse 10, they ask him. They huddle around him in a holy huddle. I don't know if they wade out into the water or not. You know, I love that imagination. Think of your imagination. What is going on here? And they, they say to him, Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? Notice them. Very explicit in the text. To those guys. And Jesus responds, and notice the flow of the text. He tells them why he tells the story now. Remember, this is the interpretive, most important interpretive code of all the parables. So we really need to pay attention. Here in verses 11 to 12, you'll notice Jesus, isn't it fun, I mean, to read the scripture, Jesus is both forthright in one sense, and in another sense, somewhat mysterious in his response. Do you see that? Before directly answering their question, Jesus tells his disciples with language that is a little hard to understand, but this is what he's saying, that true spiritual insight and discernment, that is the secrets of his kingdom, is a grace gift that we have to receive. It is not something that is achieved by human brilliance, reasoning, or reflection. Don't miss that. Now, as a follower of Christ, there have been several times in my life, have you ever read this? Where I've been over my head, usually I'm over my head a lot, in many ways, 
but a decision I have to make at work, a tough decision, right? Or I'm trying to have discernment about someone and what's going on, and all of a sudden, bing, that's it. You know, I'm not smart enough to think that, but there's a sense that this is way beyond me. You ever been in a situation where you needed a strength and there's no way you could have done it beyond Him? See, the picture Jesus has of the world is a God-bathed world and that humans were never created to live within the limitation of human capacity. But they were created to flourish with supernatural endowment. Jesus now, after he frames that backdrop, now he's ready to answer the question directly. He does in verse 13. Notice he says, this is why, guys, I'm adding that. This is why, guys, he's speaking to his disciples, his closest inner circle. I speak to them in parables, to them. Because seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear, and they don't understand. Now, notice what brilliant Jesus is doing as a teacher. He's using physical, sensory language of seeing and hearing, but he's making a metaphorical comparison with spiritual blindness and deafness. And Jesus is telling his disciples that his parables have a kind of, let's think of it this way, a heads and tails character to them. Right? On one side, the head side, they're both revealing to the spiritually discerning that is. In the same time, the tail side, they are concealing to those who are spiritually dull. Now, what's really important to grasp is the context of his listeners, because this context that Jesus is teaching is not an irreligious context. He's not primarily talking about irreligious people who are spiritually blind. He's talking about religious people that are blind. And this is very sobering to his listeners and should be sobering to us, especially if we've been in church a while. See, irreligious people can be spiritually blind, right, by definition. The danger is religious people can be equally spiritually blind. Both are grave perils. Perhaps the gravest peril is the religious. The religious leaders of the day, let's remember in our study of Matthew, Jesus is confronting them, isn't he? They had a great deal of religious information. They were deeply dedicated to God, but they were living in a religious la-la land. They were spiritually blind and deaf with a false sense of security. When you listen between the lines, when you hear their heart, when you see what's going on in the text of Matthew, they are comfortable in their smug religious closets. And they don't have a clue how clueless they are. They're thinking to themselves, haven't we all been there? I hope we're not all there today. Hey, we got this. Got it. Been there, done that. Got to figure it out. Or, we are doing just fine, thank you. But they're not doing fine at all, are they? Now, to reinforce his very sobering, authoritative rabbinical words, Jesus addresses or directs his religious listeners to an Old Testament authority. If you study the prophets of the Old Testament, I'm telling you even today, in Jewish circles, the prophet Isaiah, or Isaiah, is the prince of prophets. And if you've read Isaiah you know how brilliant the book is. He points to Isaiah and says, ah, remember what Isaiah said? He's not talking just to the pagan nations around ancient Israel. He's talking about the ancient Israelites who received much from God, revelation from God, and their hearts are far from God. They're going through the religious motions, but they're spiritually lost, blind, and dull. They're groping around in a suffocating yoke of prideful, self-absorbed religiosity. 
So Jesus is using the strongest language here imaginable, echoing Isaiah's words. He is describing the grave spiritual blindness and deafness, friends, to the human soul, to your soul and mine this morning. He's not just talking to first century listeners, but to you and me as well. One of the things I love is to read great biographies. And again, we all have our reading favorites. You may be fiction, nonfiction, but I'd encourage you to read biographies. One of the heroes, one of the most dynamic people that I would love to meet someday is Helen Keller. If you read her story, here she was born in 1880. She had only two years of sensory life, right? Just it, she becomes gravely ill. She survives, but she's struck blind, deaf, and mute. You know her story. And with the assistance of Annie Sullen, Sullivan, who is an amazing hero to me, she defied all odds Helen Keller did. And can you imagine in the cultural context in 1904 that Helen Keller graduated from college as a woman in that context? I mean, she defied every kind of odds in that time. It's stunning when you think about it. And Helen Keller had such extraordinary insight. One of my favorite quotes, she's got a lot of them, but when she was asked about the tragedy of her blindness, this is what she said. It's one of the most powerful quotes, the most pathetic person in the world. Notice her language. It's someone who has sight but has no vision. This is what Jesus is saying in this text. He paints the picture using Isaiah. You hear, dull, dull, can't see, can't see, can't see, as pathetic people who have no spiritual vision. This is the painting that Jesus is painting for us on the literary canvas. Just because we have two eyes and ears, right, doesn't mean we can see or hear. Spiritual reality. You ever had this experience, and uh, when I drive, I often listen to the radio, just one of my spaces, um, and uh, a lot of times I don't listen to Christian music. Sometimes I do. Hope that doesn't scare you away. But I listen to sports talk radio. You know, it's my cultural moment. Right. But you ever had a time when you have the tuner tuned to an FM station, but you're looking for an AM and you don't know it? You ever had that? And you're punching the button, punching the button, there's nothing coming, and you can't figure it out until you realize, ah, oh, wrong band, wrong wavelength, I got to push AM. You ever had that? In other words, the signals, wavelength is all around you, but you can't perceive it. You can't hear it or see it. Spiritual reality is like that. Jesus is saying, you're on an FM station, and I have an AM wavelength. See, only Jesus knows that can give us this frequency. This is not something we conjure up. To truly hear and see the good and fruitful life requires a grace gift. Only Jesus can give this to you and me. Only Jesus can open our eyes and ears to see as he sees. And the question for each one of us this morning is, are we open to receive this grace gift? Because only when we embrace Jesus Christ by faith as the Lord and Savior of our lives can we receive this grace gift. Without this grace gift, grace gift we are spiritually blind and spiritually deaf, no matter how hard we try and how religious we are. Notice the turn of tone here. In verse 16, Jesus, after these strong words, looks at his disciples, no, but you get it. 
Blessed are your eyes, verse 16, for they see and for they hear. Because they had been called by Jesus, they had received the gift of grace, they had spent time with him, they were beginning to see and hear like Jesus. And Jesus goes on to more specifics now of what his story means to them in verses 17 through 23. What is Jesus saying? Let's look carefully there. Jesus now explains in verses 17 through 23, he explains the four kinds of soil, what they signify. Now, I want you to notice it's not just for our curiosity or information. What he does, brilliant Jesus, he gives us a literary mirror or an oratory mirror to look into our hearts. Will you do me a favor this morning? I don't want you to think about other people's fruitfulness or lack of it, okay? Not the person sitting next to you, not the person that's driving you crazy. Hopefully not the same. But I want you to look at the text and allow the mirror to look into your heart because the human heart is the most murky place that we ever occupy. Jesus talks about the first kind of heart or soul or soil. It's the hardened one. See, when a hardened heart encounters the seeds of grace and truth of the gospel, he or she immediately rejects it, brushes it off as foolishness or irrelevant to their life of having no value at all. And here in verse 19, Jesus makes the case that the evil one licks his demented chops around the hardened heart. Bam! Got it. Because the harder your heart is, the more you reject the truth of Jesus Christ, the more difficult it is to embrace him. Like a black hole, a light of truth has no way of entering at all. It's a very perilous situation. The second soil is the person with a shallow heart. It's called rocky ground, right, when you have your text open. When the seed of truth and grace fall on shallow hearts, there is an initial exuberance and acceptance on an emotional level, but it doesn't grow. Its shallow rootedness soon withers away. When the demands of discipleship of Jesus' friends gets difficult, and it will, right, Jesus doesn't hide the cross when he invites you to follow him. It will get difficult. A person with rocky ground or a shallow heart goes AWOL when discipleship gets challenging. Hearts of rocky soil may often, I find, procrastinate their commitment to Christ. If you're younger here, often this is true of younger people who look at their life and say, I had 70 years, I'm going to go sow my wild oats, have lots of fun, play whatever, do whatever I want to do, and then I'm going to get serious about Jesus later. People with rocky soil are very adept. They're brilliant at rationalizing their disobedience or indifference to God. And what I find in this kind of soul is they have extraordinary ability and energy to play games with God. The third soil is a divided heart. Like weedy soil, when the seeds of truth and grace of the gospel fall on the divided heart, there is an initial burst of acceptance. There's an initial growth, but then the strong weeds of their soul soon take over and choke it out. What does a divided heart look like as you look at your heart this morning? Lots of distractions, over-busyness, tormenting worries, paralyzing fear. Because the divided heart is in the clutches of heart idols. They may be power, fame, pleasure, wealth. 
And those with weedy soil are torn apart inside, even though they often look good outside on Sunday morning. Because they're trying to live well on the inside, but with wrongly ordered lives. And what I find in my own experience and in so many people's, when the heart is divided, the passion erodes. erodes. That's true in a human relationship, through a relationship with God. When your heart is divided, your passion for Jesus erodes. At the end of the day, a divided heart says this, I really want to do it my way. This relationship is only going to work with you, God, if I do it my way. The fourth soil Jesus talks about is the soil with a good heart or a good soul. Like the good soil, the seeds of grace and truth flourish, don't they? They deepen their roots in time and in seasons exhibit an increasing fruitful life. And Jesus says, notice the text that the fruitfulness of each good heart will vary. There's no place for comparison of fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100. That's God's doing. So Jesus wants us to look in the mirror this morning. He wants us to reflect on the condition of our hearts, friends. What kind of soil are you this morning? Do not leave without asking that question humbly, prayerfully to God this morning, wherever you are in your faith. What kind of soil are you this morning? What is the true condition of your heart? Recently, I had an annual physical, which is always fun, isn't it? I love physicians, but I don't love going to them. I mean, they probe you in places I don't want to be probed, okay? I won't won't go to that. (laughs) But isn't it amazing if you're a physician, you know that in an annual physical, there's lots of things they look at. Boy, my physician looks at my heart a lot. My EKG, right? My blood work, he listens to it with a stethoscope. Can't say that. Why? Why does he pay so much attention to my heart when it comes to my health? Because if my heart suffers, everything else in my health suffers. Jesus, the great physician, knew that too. True condition of your heart and mind matters a great deal, friends. Without a good heart, you and I will never flourish, nor will we ever live a truly good and fruitful life. So are you becoming a more fruitful person? See, when we look at Scripture, we were created with fruitfulness in mind. We were created in the garden to have intimacy with God and to be fruitful for God and for others. To do work for the glory of God. That's the language of fruit. All the way through the Bible, the thread of fruitfulness is seamless and coherent. The psalmist begins the whole psalter, the whole psalms, 150 psalms. Psalm 1, he describes what? We'll be like a tree, firmly planted by rivers of water, which bears its fruit in its season. We are like a tree. Recently, I was in the redwoods, you know. Wow, if you're rid of the redwoods or the sequoia, it's like, that's a tree. That's a fruitful tree. That's the picture. Jesus will say to his disciples in John 15, right before his crucifixion, the night before his crucifixion, he will say, when you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. What did Jesus have in mind? When we think of fruitfulness, we often make two common distortions. The first distortion is what I call the personal piety distortion. That's seeing the Bible's teaching and Jesus' teaching on fruitfulness as primarily through the lens of our individual spiritual qualities and leading others to the saving knowledge of Jesus. This is vitally important. 
But it's not all what the Bible speaks about or Jesus is talking about when he talks about a fruitful life. Jesus is not just talking about our inner worlds, but also the outer world, the rough and tumble day-to-day world where we live and work every day. A vital aspect of a fruitful life, friends, from Genesis to Revelation, the whole Bible is our vocational faithfulness. Our contribution flows from the work of our hands in loving and serving others. A fruitful life is a productive Monday life, not merely a Sunday go-to-church life. A second distortion that is so common and so dangerous is what I call the prosperity distortion. This distortion on fruitfulness confuses the measures of cultural success. Like, like monetary wealth or physical or emotional health or prestige or accumulations or power is somehow evidence of a fruitful life. Now, while these things are not necessarily bad in themselves and sometimes maybe evidence of godly fruitfulness, Many people, apprentices of Jesus who live fruitful lives, do not have great wealth or great health or influence or power. See, a fruitful life can flow from the crucible of the most painful failure, of the deepest suffering, of poor physical or emotional health or financial failure or egregious injustice or even the imprisonment for the gospel as some of our dear Iranian friends teach us. We must be careful not to equate a flourishing life with a culturally successful life. A faithful life is a fruitful life, no question. But a fruitful life looks very different for different people. So let me ask a question. Jesus wants us to ask this question. He is looking into your heart and to my heart and saying, Tom, what's the evidence of fruitfulness there? It's all too easy for us to think about somebody else. But I want us to focus on our own heart this morning. In taking personal inventory, there are three areas of fruitfulness biblically. And I want to grace them briefly. You might want to write them down and think about these. First, our fruitful intimacy with Jesus. When Jesus gathered his disciples around him the night before his crucifixion, he invited them and you and me to experience the most tender, precious intimacy with him. And he used the image of a vine and grapes, of fruitfulness, right? Branch and vines to show us this. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. How are you cultivating and experiencing growing intimacy with Jesus? The foundation of fruitfulness is intimacy with Jesus. Everything flows from that. A growing intimacy with Jesus brings a constant awareness, no matter what you're facing today, your pains of the past, the circumstances you're facing, the doubts you're wrestling with, no matter your hurts and feelings and disappointment, you are never alone. Jesus, your good shepherd, is with you. Wherever you go, wherever you are, whatever fear you're dealing with, whatever shame you're wrestling with, whatever doubt, Jesus is there. He is the good shepherd. And he restores our soul and he leads us to still waters. Matt Mayer is um, one of my favorite contemporary songwriters these days. Matt Mayer has this capture of a song called Abide With Me. Listen to some of the words. He writes, I have a home, an eternal home, but for now I walk this broken world. (laughs) You walked it first, Lord, you know our pain. But you show hope can rise again from the grave. Oh, abide with me. Abide with me. 
Don't let me fall and don't let me go. Walk with me and never leave. Ever close, God, abide with me. A fruitful life has fruitful intimacy with Jesus. And out of that flows the second category, a fruitful character of Jesus. See, when we trust and obey Jesus and when we are yoked with Him as His apprentice, we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, the fruitful character of Jesus is formed within us and exudes from us outward in our relationships and in our work. The Apostle Paul describes this Christ-like character as the fruit of the Spirit, right? In Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let me ask you a question. If I were to ask your spouse, your children, your friends at school, your colleagues at work, to describe your life, what words would come to their mind? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, discipline, self-control. See, those who walk with Jesus become like Him over time. What are the fruits of your character saying? Fruitfulness inevitably has seasons, yes. There are times, seasons, and soils. But fruitfulness by its nature never remains hidden for long. It always bubbles to the surface. People around you know whether you're living a fruitful life. The danger is sometimes we don't in our own spiritual blindness. Third, our fruitful intimacy and fruitful character lead to our fruitful, fruitful, ah, sorry, fruitful contribution for Jesus. We were created and redeemed to glorify God and to serve others by being fruitful in our various vocational callings. Fruitfulness is about Monday life. Remember, work is not just something that brings a paycheck. Work is our contribution to others for the glory of God, whether we're compensated for it or not. From cradle to grave, we are called to contribute to others and to our world. We were created to be fruitful. And we are redeemed by the gospel to be fruitful. Colossians 3.23, Paul says, whatever you do, do your work heartily for the Lord and not for men. Yeah. The fruitfulness of our intimacy with Jesus and our character of Jesus frames the backdrop for the fruitfulness and productivity of our vocations on Monday morning. Your vocational stewardship is one of the most important stewardships of your lives. It's not incidental that Jesus spent the vast majority of his time in his parables talking about work and economic life. Because the vast majority of our fruitfulness rests right there in everyday life. So what's the condition of your heart this morning? We can't rush through this. What are the evidences in your life? In my life? that I am living an increasingly fruitful life. In my fruitful intimacy with Jesus, fruitful character of Jesus, and my fruitful contribution for Jesus. Remember, there are seasons of fruitfulness. And remember, God will move heaven and earth 
heaven and earth to reach even the most lost and wandering sheep. Many of us this morning are hearing a tap about some issues of the heart that need attention. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work. Work and works can be translated the same. Don't think just almsgiving, work. It's what we do every day. It's not a result of works so that anyone may boast. Not in spiritual works, not in our work. For we are his workmanship. There's no break in the sentence. For by grace we're saved, it's not of our own doing. Anything we do, any of our work. But what? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good work, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The good news of the gospel not only saves us from grave peril, it saves us for great fruitfulness. So let me ask you, is faithfulness all that matters in your life? Jesus is all about faithfulness, but it reminds us that a faithful life will be a fruitful, flourishing life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we all wrestle. We all need to hear your word to our hearts this morning. It's a murky place. We wrestle with spiritual deafness, distraction, spiritual blindness. We are lost without you. So would you probe the depths of our heart with your kindness and your love, but with illumination to what is there. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, we need you. We need you. Speak to us. Amen.